Today, we're going to be talking about the shocking sovereignty of God. I'm just going to pray to kind of reset our mind from singing mood to uh, contemplative mood here. So, um, dear God, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you for being sovereign, Lord. Sometimes it shocks us. And Lord, please help us this morning as we look at how uh, your sovereignty has worked in history with the Gentile nations. Uh, help us to see how you are working today and help us to know what to do in response to that. We love you, Lord, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Okay, so in regards to sovereignty, I think um, Stephen touched on this some last week. But anyway, I want to touch on some possible responses that we can have to God's sovereignty. Again, I think he might have touched on this some, but I want to just... Um, review that. So we could have resistance to God's sovereignty. We could be confused about it, or we could choose to worship him. So looking at that first one, what would it look like if we're resisting God's sovereignty? You know, if it's a particular situation, somebody might say, well, I, I'm not going to believe that God is like that, or that I'm not going to believe that there is a God because I don't like this thing that you're saying is his sovereignty at work. I had a, um, someone I knew tell me one time I was having a conversation with her and she said, I don't want to believe in a God like that, like for whatever this particular issue is. So that could be one response, resistance. And it, really the root of it seems to be, I'm smarter than God, I'm more just, I know better. It's really an attitude of pride. Another possible response could be, confusion. We might look at some different things that have happened or that are in the Bible and say, you know, this seems inconsistent. I don't understand. This doesn't seem fair. Could God really have a standard like that? And so that's another possible response. And I think in that response, there's this tendency to amplify what we perceive as God's inconsistencies rather than recognizing our own inconsistencies and those of our fellow men and women. And alas, another response would be worship. We can choose to say, I'm going to submit myself to the one that is greater than I am and trust him, even if I don't understand everything. Maybe I'll understand it later. Maybe I will understand it much later, but I'm just going to trust in the meantime and submit myself to him. And in this one, I think Personally, I think having that conversation with God where you say, I don't get it. How does this make sense? I don't understand. I think, ha I think that is a type of worship in a way. I think it's, it's when we sit and contemplate and think about and try to just try to get our minds around something that we don't, it doesn't fit into our mold of how we think things should work. I think that is a way of worshiping God and showing him that we are still keeping him in his place and recognizing our own position in that possible confusion. All right, so just to recap, in case you weren't here, so this little mini-series, there's different, we've broken into three areas. Last week, Stephen talked about focusing on the Hebrew people and God's sovereignty. This week, we're going to be looking at the Gentile nations. Next week, we'll be looking specifically at the New Testament church and God's sovereignty and things um, during that initial time. 
I have kind of broken this down into, as we're looking at the Gentile nations, looking at how God used them as an object for demonstration, a tool for implementation, and a witness for clarification. Sometimes these overlap, overlap a little bit, but I think they make little good ways to break it down to, to get our minds around it. In the area of uh, being an object of demonstration, we're going to look at Egypt and Canaan and Nineveh. You may be saying, well, object of demonstration for what? I believe God uses the Gentile nations in this area. He's demonstrating qualities about himself. They're all things about him that he wants us to understand. So in the case of Egypt, we see God is demonstrating his power and he's demonstrating that he keeps promises. God chose to use the plagues there so that there was no question that he was greater than Pharaoh or anything else that ones choose to worship. And in Exodus 8, um, verse 10, I'm just going to read a little verse here. There's a conversation between Pharaoh and Moses where it's in the middle of all the plagues that are taking place. And um, Pharaoh basically says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you go tomorrow. And um, Moses says, May it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. So, again, that's, he, wants, he wanted Pharaoh and, and others to see his power. And God also chose Egypt to demonstrate um, not only his power, that when um, Pharaoh would not bend his knee, but that he was willing to keep his promises. God keeps his promises. And the promise I want to refer to is, in, is touched on many places, but in Exodus 6, 4, God says... I also established my covenant with them, them being Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and their descendants, to give them the land of Canaan, the land which they sojourned. So that brings us to uh, the next place where God demonstrates something about himself, which is Canaan. And there I'd say there is a, a demonstration of God's patience, judgment, and faithfulness to his promises. So that might hit you a little odd for me to say God's patience when this is like one of those hot button stories that people just think it's outrageous that God would say, go wipe out all the Canaanites. That just seems crazy. And like That sounds like judgment, but I don't know about patience. So just bear with me here. <laughs> so the Canaanite culture was just really morally disgusting. And I have some verses in there. You can also just look up historical articles that are not don't have anything to do with the bible at all they were just really really horrible and this idolatrous system and culture have been evil for over 400 years if you stop and think about it so most of us know the story of sodom right during abraham and lot's lifetime we know what was going on there but i mean Although things, a culture can change quickly, it didn't become that way overnight, right? There was some lead-up time to this time where they couldn't find more than five righteous people in the whole city, right? So there was a lead-up there. And then, if you think about it, so after Abraham, there was Isaac and Jacob and Joseph, and Joseph goes to Egypt, and all his descendants live in Egypt for hundreds of years. 
And the Canaanites are still, they are still living this horrible, horrible life, um, this horrible, idolatrous culture. It's well ingrained, men and women, everybody is participating in it. And I like you to just think about how long, like, you know, we, can, we hear this argument, and it's, it's a question worth asking, like, we do hear this argument of how could God just wipe out all these people, right? But it would be a good question to ask somebody who points that out, or ask yourself, like, when we think about justice today, if, if we had a conversation about justice and we said, um, how long um, until, you know, justice should be rendered in this situation? People would say, well, it should be immediate. If it's not immediate, then it should be as soon as possible. Justice should be rendered as soon as possible. But yet God, he waited over 400 years before, I mean, he gave them over 400 years to repent from this idolatrous system. And um, to me, I mean, Stephen mentioned last week, and it's, there are many verses that say God is patient, but to me this is like a great illustration of that through the, through the nation and the people of Canaan. And then moving on to one last demonstration of who God is, as, as seen in the, na- the Gentile nations, is Nineveh, where we see a demonstration of God's mercy. So God sovereignly chose to be merciful to Nineveh by sending um, Jonah, although he was a rebellious and unwilling to, um, to warn the city initially. And I just want to read a couple things. So how this all came about. So God said to Jonah in chapter 1, he said, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Of course, we all know that he didn't go right away. But then later, God says to him again, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, this is in chapter 3, if you want to follow. Go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. So he's only made it through one-third of the city. And already we see what's going to happen. It says, Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. Right after that, the word reaches the king of Nineveh, and he also responds in the same way that the people did, and issues his own proclamation about what they should do. And he basically, they openly repented to God, and God mercifully chose not to destroy them. So it's interesting to me, the king's own words are that, that, they, had to, that they needed to turn um, from their wicked ways and the violence which was in their hands. So again, for a king to even describe his own actions and his kingdom's actions as being wicked and violent, I think says something. And of course, the king went on to say, who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. Now, I had called this, you know, this part showing God showing his mercy, but Jonah himself actually described 
describes it even a little better. He says in Jonah 4.2, he says, You are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. So next I'd like to look at seeing the Gentile nations as a tool for implementing God's will, in particular, implementing his will in directing Judah. And we're going to look at three individuals who represent those three different nations. We have Nebuchadnezzar and Cyrus and Pilate. So Nebuchadnezzar, I call him the tool of God's judgment. Because God had warned of the destruction that would follow if the Hebrew people ignored God's plan and followed their nation's, other nations' ways. And we spent a lot of time during this um, reading through the Bible series talking about um, all the things that were going wrong. And recently we've talked about the destruction and the lament of the temple and the Babylonian captivity taking place. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on that, but we know that God used Nebuchadnezzar in this way. Now Cyrus is a, was a tool of God's restoration. God chooses Cyrus to return the Jewish people to Jerusalem. It says in Isaiah 44 that God says, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform all my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem, she will be built. And of the temple, your foundation will be laid. And this is really significant because not only is it keeping a promise that was made earlier, there's constant promises throughout the scriptures, but by bringing the people back to Jerusalem and the restoration of the temple, we have this preservation of this picture of what God demands a perfect sacrifice, right? We, we have to have a perfect sacrifice to cover our sins. And again, by restoring the temple and that sacrificial system, that's carried on until the time when Jesus, the right time when Jesus came, when he could be the ultimate and perfect sacrifice. And the last tool in, that I'm going to talk about anyway in, in God's toolbox um, is Pilate, who I call a tool of God's redemption. Because while the Jewish religious leaders did have some authority in Jesus' day under Rome, they did not have authority to put anyone to death. And so, of course, Pilate has Jesus put to death, but his authority even comes from God. Of course, he is acting on behalf of Rome, but as Jesus said, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above. So, the final section I want to talk about here is how the nations act as a witness for God. I called it clarity earlier, but it's clarifying what's true, witnesses to tell what's true. And again, with this, I would count Samaritans and Pilate. Now, you might um, wonder why I'm counting. You might question, oh, can, are Samaritans really a Gentile nation? Because as we know, as we've been studying, they are the line of David, but they're so, so intermarried and mixed with other nations that their Jewish um, cousins, well, maybe we should say, didn't even, they almost consider them worse than Gentiles to many. 
But it, the Samaritan villagers are witnesses for God. Of course, we know the story of the woman at the well, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, and she goes and tells other people that she knows about Jesus. And it says in John 4 that many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. But then right after that, we see that Jesus spent some time there and spent time with the Samaritans. And then many of them were able to say, we have heard for ourselves and know that this is the one who is indeed the savior of the world. And my final witness, I'll call today, was Pilate. And in all the gospels, we see a testimony as to Jesus's innocence. And that's important because, because he's innocent, he can be the, spot, um, the spotless lamb required to take away our sins. Pilate said, I find no guilt in him. In multiple places, he tells different people, there's no guilt, there's no guilt. And even his wife says of Jesus, he t- she tells her husband, have nothing to do with that righteous man. He even, she even calls Jesus a righteous man. So as, uh, as that nation, the Roman Empire nation, Pilate witnesses, is a witness for God's plan. So we can see how God uses the Gentile nations to demonstrate things about himself, to implement his plan for Israel and the nations, and to witness to the truth about who Jesus was and his character. So what do we do with this? How do we handle this shocking sovereignty with our family, with our coworkers, with our neighbors, whoever it is that we're talking with? How do we handle that? Well, the first thing, and probably a really important thing to remember is that we cannot control if the person we're talking to is gonna be a stiff-necked pharaoh who just keeps not listening, or whether that person is going to be a contrite Ninevite who, like, seems to get it right away. That's not our job. We can't control that. And believe me, there's plenty in what we've been studying as we've been looking at the Bible that, especially in this later part of the Old Testament, that's going to confound people. All of these stories involve the death of thousands or more likely hundreds of thousands of people. And that's something that our culture says it can't stand as long as we're talking about people that they consider to be people. So what do we do with this? The first thing I suggest we do is embrace the shocking things that we're studying. When you share what you're learning about the God of the Bible, take advantage of the resistance and confusion that might arise either with who you're talking to or even within yourself, the turmoil might be there, might be felt to lead us to lead you or lead them to a real understanding. And believe me, I'm saying that as much for myself as for you guys. It's hard to embrace the shocking things, but I think we would really benefit. It would be good if we did. The second thing I think we should do is embrace the contradictions of what God says is righteous and what our culture says that we should embrace. We shouldn't be embarrassed of what God says is right and what he says isn't right. God may want to use us to help ones think differently than what everyone else is telling them. 
We certainly don't want to wish their destruction like Jonah did. We want to remember that God's being patient and he wants ones to come to repentance. And lastly, I think we need to learn how to flip the interpretation of the facts from perceiving something as unfair to perceiving something as merciful. Years ago, we had a prayer time and we were praying through certain scriptures and I apologize. Michelle told me, you really need to know what that scripture was, but I couldn't remember it and I couldn't find it. But anyway, you'll get the point. There was a verse that we read through and the one couple that I was with at the time said, you know, it, basically it, it talked about a lot of people, God just, you know, killing a bunch of people, right? It was pretty direct, but there were like this few people that were saved from this situation. And they were like, gosh, that, that's like, that's incredible. I like, I can't believe that. And I was saying, sitting there thinking, yeah, I can't believe all those people died. And they're like, can you believe that God saved those, those other people? Because they didn't deserve to be saved either, but he saved them. And I, I just didn't have that. I had this perspective of looking at the negative of the side. I didn't see the, the, the merciful side of it. I only saw what I perceived as the, the harsh judgment. And I think in whatever topic comes along, we need to seek God's perspective and flip it so that we're not changing the facts. The facts are the same, but our perspective is changing. And um, I think that that would really help ourselves and help, help others as we, as we do that. So what I'd like to do is just read, read through this um, Romans eleven thirty three verse, which, again, I think that was read last week, but it's really good just referring to God's sovereignty. Um, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Let's just, let's just pray to close it out here. Dear Lord, thank you that you used the Gentile nations to demonstrate your qualities, to implement your will, to be a witness as to how Jesus was the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Thank you that you are patient with us. You are patient with ones who don't know you. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for uh, your plan. We thank you for revealing so many things to us. We love you and we pray that you will guide our days, guide our thoughts in these next, this, this coming week. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.